You're listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. Later on, we'll be hearing from Edward Gomez about some goings-on here in Cardiff over the summer with a bunch of visitors who've been doing some very exciting things. But first of all, let's head abroad to the United States, where in August we had uh, one of the most highly publicised astronomical events of recent times, the total solar eclipse uh, that travelled across the whole of continental United States. Uh, It began up in the northwest in Oregon and travelled across down to the south east in South Carolina, a few thousand miles with millions of people uh, observing it. And some people went uh, from here in the UK and from further afield, of course, travelled thousands of miles to go and observe this, uh, what some call a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, although many have observed them several times before. Uh, later on, I'll be speaking to people who did travel from here in the UK, but to begin with, I thought I'd speak to a relative local. I'm joined now by Martin Ratcliffe, who's an astronomer based in Kansas, although originally from here in the UK. Uh, Martin uh, is a contributing editor to Astronomy Magazine and uh, director of professional development at Skyscan, a company that deals with planetarium software and gives all sorts of talks about astronomy to all sorts of people, I'm sure. So, Martin, you went up to uh, Wyoming to go and view uh, the eclipse so from your from your home in Kansas. That's a good few hours drive, I guess. Uh, and yes, and what, it was. was it was it a successful trip? It was an absolutely successful trip, Chris. We had a wonderful time. I, I felt uh, very uh, lucky to be uh, within a few hours, as you say, of the eclipse track. It's about an 11 hour drive uh, from here in Wichita, Kansas to Casper, Wyoming. And it was one of the areas that had been selected uh, as one of the best uh, weather prospects based on weather statistics uh, to view the eclipse from. There was at least a 60% chance of clear skies. Um, But weather statistics don't count on the day because it depends on what the weather is on that one day. Uh, And we were extremely lucky uh, to have a a beautiful, relatively clear sky, a little bit of cirrus cloud, but uh, a spectacular view uh, of this incredible event. And you're a seasoned eclipse observer. This was this was far from your first eclipse. How many have you seen in the past? Uh, well, this was I counted this as my seventh. It was eleven years since I saw my last one, and uh, we had a few seasoned astronomers around in our group. And um, I can tell you, even if you're a seasoned eclipse goer, this was absolutely awe-inspiring and and just catches your breath. It takes takes your breath away the moment of totality. Um, I'm still excited by the moment because it was only about 48 hours ago. Uh, and as I talk about it here, um, it, the, the visual experience of the last minute to 30 seconds of totality is essentially the lights are turned out very rapidly. Following a very slow half hour decline in light, suddenly you're plunged into this incredible darkness and and this intense black hole in the sky that looks larger than you think it should um, uh, surrounded by this uh, exquisite pearly iridescent corona uh, with um, coronal streamers there were three of them that were very prominent one to the southeast that was quite long the longest streamer i've seen at an eclipse Uh, it it was breathtaking chris it was absolutely breathtaking and we we should remind people that I mean, this this eclipse, as bre- breathtaking as it is, is actually a, a pretty simple natural occurrence. So, so what's going on when we when we talk about a, a total solar eclipse? 
It really is. And it's an event where every time the moon goes around the Earth, um, every now and then it passes directly between us and the sun. And we're lucky because the moon is 400 times closer than the sun, but it's also 400 times smaller. So their apparent size in the sky is practically exactly the same. There's a very subtle difference depending on the moon's orbit, which is not round, it's elliptical. So sometimes it's a bit further away, sometimes a bit closer. And that's what governs the duration of totality. Now, you would think every new moon, every time the moon passed between the Earth and the sun, you would get an eclipse, and that would be fantastic. Um, but we don't get that luxury because the moon's orbit is actually tilted by six degrees, uh, five to six degrees to uh, the plane of the solar system, the plane, well, the plane of Earth's orbit around the sun. So it's only once every, uh, well, a couple of times a year, if you're lucky, you will get an eclipse of either the sun or the moon or both. And if you're in a very narrow band, you might get a total eclipse. But it all depends if, this, if the moon is just at that right location, the moment that where its orbit crosses the Earth's orbit, and it's in line with the sun. So you've got all these periods, the monthly period of the moon going around the Earth, the Earth going around the sun, and, and all of these things combine together to create what is a rare event uh, in restricted areas of the planet. So you end up with this uh, very, very narrow pencil beam shadow from the moon. Remember, the moon is 30 times the Earth's diameter away. So it's, it's an incredibly narrow shadow and for it to hit the Earth anywhere is remarkable. Mm -hmm. And the Earth is covered in two-thirds of water. So 70, 60, 70% of the time, the track is across fairly uh, inhospitable areas or across the ocean. So for it to cross a large landmass like the United States, uh, it, I think the track was something like 4,000 miles long, is really a rare event and is probably the most observed uh, eclipse in probably in history so far i would guess yeah it's going to be hard to beat i mean i saw estimates beforehand of millions of people lining the the path of totality because it passed through some near some pretty big cities yes uh, and then of course with with what well, all of continental united states seeing a fairly chunky partial eclipse with a, a good chunk of the sun observed yep. there were pictures of new york times square and so on um uh, viewing it as well so yeah I, I i'm sure there must have been tens of millions of people if not more than that uh actually observing the the thing in general yeah mm -hmm. and i think the hard uh, you know with any eclipse it's always uh difficult beforehand to emphasize the importance of trying to get to the path of totality which is very narrow uh one of the things we heard very frequently uh prior to the eclipse was uh in regions like here in wichita well we're getting you know, 95%. That's pretty good, right? That's close to 100. And uh, when you experience totality, 95% uh, is as near to zero as anything else. And uh, the, the really spectacular part of the eclipse occurs in that last minute or two as you go from 99% to 100%. That's where the drama occurs. And, and the real spectacle of nature occurs when the corona, the sun's outer atmosphere, uh, bursts into view. Now, it's they're breathtaking events to witness, and many people say when you go and see a total eclipse, the main thing is to make sure you're actually looking at it, albeit with, of course, all the suitable protection. Uh, but 
many people also want to take photos to record it. And I know you were taking images and some people were taking many, many images of this thing. And that, that's something that's really changed in the last couple of decades, that the field that you were in must have been covered in tripods with cameras on. It really was of tripods and cameras of all kinds. Uh, the difference, I think, with well, certainly for me personally, this is the first time I had a digital SLR. Um, it was also the first time I've been able to drive to a total eclipse. So I could bring my four-inch high-quality refractor um, and actually have a decent mount. Um, one of the uh, probably best-known eclipse chasers, uh, Fred Espenak, who used to work for NASA, um, and uh, he did most of the predictions and still does for NASA's website uh, and nicknamed Mr. Eclipse. He had 17 cameras rolling. Uh, he was just uh, a few hundred feet away from our site and uh, he'd selected uh, Casper as well as the site to be. So we felt in very good company. And um, I think with the, you know, the advent of digital cameras, a lot of people may have photographed on film prior, you know, prior to 2000. And, and the digital age has really revolutionized what we can do with eclipses. And, and in fact, it's, it's emphasized some of the science that can get, uh, we can get out of eclipses because uh, the digital capabilities allow uh, much more careful tracking of what the inner corona is doing, which we never really get a view from, even from space. And that, that's something that's interesting, actually, because you talk about, or we talk, we talk about the science that come out of eclipses. And, and so ac actually... Uh, in terms of what eclipses have taught us uh, over the, the centuries, we've learned most of the stuff about the sun and the moon and the solar system and so on. We can now predict these very, very accurately, and they happen. Uh, and so most astronomers, even professional astronomers, go to these eclipses and just want to what they just want to look up and say, "Holy cow, the sky's gone black!" Uh, kind of uh, kind of thing. Or, or I possibly paraphrase, but. There is, there are still little bits of science that you can get. So, what what can we look at with the sun's atmosphere, and what can we understand from these? Well, one of the uh, intriguing things that is, uh, well, let me go back a little bit because I uh, the talk I did uh, at at the um, astronomy conference I, I spoke at was about the 1898 eclipse that the British Astronomical Association sent a, a, a group to, including E. W. Maunder, who was a very famous solar. Uh, physicist. And, and that was only three years after the element helium was discovered uh, in 1895. Uh, so the eclipse was 1898. And people were very focused on spectroscopy in those days and trying to understand the elements of what this corona was made of. In fact, only 30 years prior to that, in the mid-1800s, astronomers didn't know whether the corona was part of the moon or part of the sun. They thought perhaps this was the moon's tenuous atmosphere being uh, illuminated by the sun. So it's only really by spectroscopy that we really understood this was a very, very hot uh, gas uh, associated with the sun. And in fact, it was uh, only in the 1930s that the very hot coronal line of um, the 13 times ionized uh, iron uh, uh, atom uh, at millions of degrees, one or two millions of degrees, was identified. So, so that's less than 100 years ago. And now we have spacecraft in orbit. We can observe the sun very, very clearly. But when we photograph the corona from orbit, we have to block out the inner part of the sun, the sun's disk, and the inner part of the corona with an occulting disk. So that's what's on the Solar Dynamics Observatory. This blocks out the lower inner part of the corona. Now, what's puzzling is, and still puzzling today, I think everybody knows that if you're near a hot fire, the further away you go, the cooler you get. 
with the sun, the sun's surface is 6,000 degrees, roughly, about 5,800. And if you back away from the sun into the corona, it gets hotter, it goes up to millions of degrees. And trying to understand that uh, mechanism that's powering that, we, we still don't really know. It's, it'll be something to do with magnetic fields, something to do with uh, the dramatic motions of hot gas on the surface of the sun. But if we can observe the inner corona, uh, that's where we get this snapshot of the very fine um, uh, magnetic field and movement and, and spectra of gas in that lower corona. The advantage of this eclipse, and it's the first time we've been able to do this with mobile equipment, is put people across the 4,000 mile track across the entire United States. And we may have, uh, for the first time, a couple of hours of movie motion in the corona, which we never ever had before. Usually you get two or three minutes of the eclipse uh, and then it's gone. Uh, but this time we had, uh, NASA had hundreds of cameras across the track and we may get some really interesting dynamic science out of this rather than a static snapshot that we us astronomers usually get. So there's still stuff we're learning from these uh, remarkable uh, natural events. Uh, and uh, of course, we may learn much more in the future. Speaking of the future, have you got plans for more eclipse hunting uh, in future years, Martin? Well, you know, Chris, it, it's surprising that there's something that happens within about 30 seconds of the final diamond ring when a bead of sunlight comes out from behind the moon and you see this corona ring and you see this brilliant bead which looks like a diamond and then it's gone. Then you can't look at it and you go, wait. And everybody says, when's the next one? <laughs> <laughs> I have to see that again. That was too short. And the next one is in 2019. It actually crosses an observatory in Chile um, near La Serena on the coast of Chile and crosses Argentina. And Argentina and Chile are very lucky because they get, an, that's in um, July 2nd, 2019. They're very lucky. They get a second one in 2020. Hmm. And so South America is uh, the place to go in the next uh, three years. And the next one to cross the United States is in 2024, when it will go from uh, Texas all the way up through uh, the northeast part of the United States and into part of Canada. And then here in the UK, I think 2026, we get one that's nearby, so we can travel to Iceland or Spain uh, to yes. go and see that. Um, yes, indeed. So we, um, we, we can wait another couple of years and not have to travel thousands of miles. That's right. Uh, uh, so uh, yeah, possibly I'll possibly I'll get to see that, and I'll get my first total solar eclipse in 2026, perhaps, or maybe I'll come and visit the states in 2024. You never know. I think you should do a dry run, Chris, for 2024, and then you'll be ready for 2026. I'll count that <laughs> as an invitation. Thank you very much. Yes, yeah. absolutely, uh, absolutely, you'd be more than welcome. And, and nothing prepares anybody for the actual moment of totality. It, it is truly breathtaking. And no photograph captures it. I got some pretty good, nice photographs of this eclipse, uh, but nothing compares the visual view and the, the dramatic changes that happen in the environment in within an, a few seconds. It's, it's, it's an overpowering, it's really a human experience. It's an overpowering emotional experience in many ways because the sunlight that you rely on in the middle of the day is suddenly turned out by this cosmic object. <laughs> And and it's uh, you suddenly realize your place in the universe and, and you're having a perfect eyes view of this uh, beautiful sight. Well, I look forward to having the opportunity in the first in, in the future to, to try and see these. So uh, for now, uh, Martin Ratcliffe from uh, Kansas in the US. Uh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's been enjoyable.
So that's the view from someone uh, local to the United States. But other people, as I mentioned, did travel far and wide. And the first of those to speak to is Perry Jones, a former PhD student here in Cardiff University, who now works for Science Made Simple. I spoke to Perry a couple of days after the eclipse. And I guess the first thing to ask her was, did she see it? Yes, Chris, I did. Um, So, like you said, uh, we did fly, me, my brother and my dad flew over to the States um, on the 18th of August. So we flew over to Denver in Colorado um, and we stayed there for two nights and that was the closest that we could get up to the path of totality uh, because everywhere else was fully booked years in advance because this was such a massive event. Uh, in the astronomical calendar that the whole of the US and across the world people were travelling just to see this total eclipse. So uh, we were lucky enough, we managed to get up early enough from Fort Collins, 3am in the morning we left um, to travel up um, across the border to Wyoming and we managed to find um, a national park, uh, in Guernsey National Park we managed to get a spot and we were blessed to have absolutely crystal clear blue skies and we managed to see totality at 11.45 on the 21st of August, so it's fantastic. So you had you had uh, clear skies then, wall-to-wall sunshine? Yes, it was absolutely gorgeous. Because we left early in the morning, we saw the sunrise, which was amazing. So we saw the sunrise in Wyoming and then we set everything up um, and, it was just warming up beautifully towards the eclipse until, um, as you know, when the moon passes across the sun, it gets colder and colder. So it was quite good to have a little jacket with us. Um, and then it got colder and darker, and then it started warming up again. But there wasn't even a cloud in the sky. It was absolutely beautiful. Perfect conditions. Uh, it sounds like an amazing trip. Now, I've seen some partial eclipses. Uh, how much better than a partial eclipse where the moon blocks most but not all of the sun is it to see a total solar eclipse? Nothing, absolutely nothing compared to a total eclipse. I cannot describe how amazing it was. It was it was just fantastic. The whole You could see the whole sky instantly in a matter of seconds went from kind of dust to complete darkness. And the sun was just absolutely incredible. You just see, you know, you see the cone of the outside of the sun um, like a ring in the sky, and you just see this black, black spot in the centre, then you have this golden ring shining around it, and then it's completely dark around it as well. So it's just on a dark background. And it's, you see the pictures, people can see the pictures online, and it's something that completely looks fake, and it quite difficult to believe that you can see that with your own eyes. I'm, I'm, look, I'm thinking back to it now, and I still think it's a bit of a dream or that I just imagined all of it, but it was absolutely breathtaking, and I would advise anyone uh, to try and catch a total solar eclipse before, you know, any time in their, in their life. It was absolutely amazing. Okay, so you've seen a total solar eclipse. Uh, is that it done for eclipses, or are you going to carry on trying to hunt them when they next uh, take place close to wherever you happen to be? Well, we did say instantly that we have to start planning for the next one. <laughs> it was just such a magical experience that 
I would definitely do this all over again. I would travel to the US again to come and see it. So yes, definitely I'll be trying to hunt down an eclipse if I can uh, see it again. Excellent. Well, it sounds like a uh, a trip uh, to enjoy. I wish you luck with all the uh, sightseeing. But uh, for now, Perry, thanks very much. Thank you. I'm joined now by Will Gator, who's an astronomy journalist and astrophotographer based down in Somerset. And Will, you were out there leading a tour group out to Idaho to observe this. And how many people were in your tour group? Uh, about 50 we had. So I was the guest astronomer. I was basically on hand to sort of answer people's astronomical questions. And we took them for a stargazing night one night looking at the beautiful dark skies actually over the border in Wyoming. Um, and yeah, during Eclipse Day, my job was basically to be on hand to answer anyone's questions about what was unfolding in the sky above us. And it was a successful trip? It was very successful. I had a lot of nerves going into it because we we really did have to chase this eclipse. Our, our group was actually located outside the path of totality. And if you'd been following any of the news about the eclipse in the run up, there were sort of real scary stories of the sort of cataclysmic sort of traffic conditions that were going to be anticipated in the morning of the eclipse. And so we actually left our hotel, which was in actually Pocatello in Idaho. We left at about 5 a.m. in the morning. And already at 5 a.m., there was a good flow of traffic on the northbound carriageway into the path of totality. So it just shows you how much interest there was um, in the eclipse. But luckily, we, we got to the observing site, which was uh, a place called the North Minan Butte, a great volcanic tuff cone. Uh, we got there at about 20 past six in the morning, so a good amount of time to set up and prepare for the beginning of the eclipse, which wasn't until about quarter past ten. Ah, so uh, so, and you and then you saw uh, totality, and uh, as awe-inspiring as as everyone else has said it was. Yes, I mean uh, these these events are just they sort of make the spine tingle, and they really do sort of tap into this deep sort of awe that I, I think only an eclipse can really sort of bring out. And we had superb conditions from start to finish. There wasn't a single cloud in the sky. In fact, um, the location we were in uh, was high above the surrounding plain. It's called the Snake River Plain. And uh, to see the sort of shadows sweeping over us and to see that uh, totality from this high up vantage point was really like nothing I've ever seen before. It sounds it sounds absolutely stunning. Now, the, the 50 people uh, that were with you on this tour group, were they were they all astronomers or were they, uh, they were not astronomers at all? No, no, we had we had some astronomers, some people who bought a, a fantastic array of equipment. But then we had people who, you know, this was their very first eclipse. Um, you know, they they didn't call themselves astronomers. You know, I, I talked to a lot of them, most of them, in fact, beforehand to, to try and find out, you know, what were their interests. And actually, a lot of people had just come to see this event and they, they didn't have any sort of prior astronomical knowledge. So that was lovely. We we're all able to sort of share ideas. And my group, you know, we had a fantastic time. We really got on well, had a lot of fun. And it wasn't just us up there on the top of this volcanic outcrop. In fact, there were Really, there must have been hundreds of people, so much so that when we arrived, the local um, authorities were actually helicoptering in firefighting equipment on the top and there were mounted police. Um, so there was a real sort of festival atmosphere up there as well, which is something I've not really experienced uh, in an eclipse, this sort of great celebration, people doing yoga and playing guitars and yes, singing. It really quite extraordinary. It sounds like quite uh, quite an experience. And, uh, of the people who were there who were not astronomers, what what kind of things were they were they asking? I mean, we, I, I guess you were having to answer a lot of what is an eclipse questions, but 
But what what were the other uh, interesting things that you got asked from these uh, these people un- unfamiliar with eclipses? Well, I think a lot of the things that um, people don't realize are the sort of surrounding phenomena with eclipses. So one thing I was absolutely thrilled to see and was able to show people uh, was a phenomena called shadow bands, which are these sort of mysterious sort of perhaps an optical phenomena where it looks like in the sort of minute or so either side of totality. If you look on the ground, it looks like there's a sort of shimmering, very, very low contrast um, sort of waving shadowy lines. Some people describe them as sort of sh- uh, snakes uh, sli- uh, slithering along. Um, but uh, I had actually beforehand, I'd gone to the local Walmart and actually bought a A1 piece of foam board. I think it was an A1 piece of foam board, uh, just a big piece of foam board. And I'd laid it out on this uh, ground because I knew we'd need something flat to see it. Hmm. And I tried to see shadow bands before. And I was so pleased that about a minute before totality, I looked down and sure enough, there they were. Now, they were very difficult to see, you know, much more difficult than I had, um, you know, sort of anticipated uh, from reading previous accounts. So I was thrilled to actually see them. And in fact, a lot of these people who had never um, seen an eclipse before weren't astronomers actually got to see those as well and that was really great because it's one of those things that you know I've seen now five uh, solar eclipses and um, it's a case of I haven't seen shadow bands before and I was able to show them to people who were seeing their very first eclipse so it's all those sort of surrounding um, phenomena that you want to look for you know the shadow racing towards you looking out for the stars and the planets those sort of things as well as the sort of mechanics of the eclipse. These shadow bands that you saw. Uh, do we know what they're caused by? Well, this is the interesting thing. Actually, no. Uh, there's no real sort of consensus on the exact mechanism by which they're formed. So, um, one of the things that it looks like to me, when now I've actually seen it, and having watched it uh, for a few minutes either side of totality, is it looks like, you know, sort of, I think it's called Schlieren imaging. Uh, where you sort of see a light source projected through, I don't know, sometimes it's over the heat of a flame. It looks very similar to that. So I wonder if there's some sort of optical phenomena uh, going on that's actually causing it. Maybe, you know, the fact that the sun is this very thin crescent at that point is causing it. But actually, scientists don't know uh, the mechanism. There's no consensus. Um, And it's one of these things that, uh, like images taken by amateurs of the, the inner coronal regions, it's one of these things that, you know, amateurs can contribute to, to, to kind of um, study these objects. If you can very carefully record shadow bands, you can work at, and you record the direction the sun is, there's something that potentially scientists can investigate. And maybe, you know, who knows, it might be people observing eclipses and going on eclipse tours that actually reveal the mysteries and, you know, reveal what's actually going on. Fascinating, fascinating. And, and when the sun goes behind the moon, or when, when the moon goes in front of the sun, I guess, do you uh, do you find yourself looking at the planets and the stars, or are you just focused on the spectacle that is the sun and its corona? Yeah, so lots of different people um, basically approached it in lots of different ways. So my aim during totality was actually to get, gather some pictures for the group, because a lot of them didn't bring sort of camera equipment, or, you know, I advised them that really if this is your first eclipse, although, you know, the, the sort of desire to take a picture is great actually you just want to absorb it all in and have a look so i sort of said you know i'll take some pictures so i i brought a telescope and various different dslr cameras and set them up um so that's what i was doing during the eclipses snapping away frantically and i did manage to have a good look at it it was uh, phenomenal to see the the helmet streamers these huge long pearly white sort of uh, ribbon like tendrils coming away from the corona that was 
really impressive. It almost looked like sort of like the devil with a goatee beard, I thought, <laughs> um, if I had to describe it. It was quite uh, strange to see it. And of course, beforehand, there have been predictions of what the Corona would look like. And actually, sure enough, it looks like they got the predictions pretty, pretty spot on, actually. Oh, it sounds that sounds excellent. And if anything's a, an omen, then it's the sign of the devil in the uh, sun, I guess. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there we go. Have you got another trip planned at all for, for next eclipse? I don't know. I'd love to go to the one in Chile. That looks fantastic. 2019. And I know Amiga Holidays are also doing a trip there. So keep an eye on the Amiga website. Who knows? Um, you know, there might be a chance for some of your listeners um, to book on and see one of these eclipses because it really is one of the things that, you know, everyone's on their bucket list uh, to see. It's uh, it's a truly phenomenal natural spectacle. And yeah, it's nothing quite like it. Well, certainly on my bucket list. So uh, Will Gator, thanks very much. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's fair to say that after hearing all of this, seeing a total eclipse of the sun is most definitely on my bucket list. So fingers crossed uh, for 2024 or 2026, uh, from my point of view at least. Back here to Cardiff, and we've had a few visitors over the summer uh, working on a number of projects. And Edward Gomez went to speak to them. Well, thanks, Chris. Uh, so I'm in uh, a computer room that would normally be used for master's level project students, but it's been turned into a maker space this summer. Uh, we have five science communication interns working with us. We have uh, Alice, Brandon, Ronan, Susanna, and as you know, Chris, we have Dan working with you. Uh, so let's find out a little bit more what they've all been doing this summer. Now you can hear next to me uh, a strange noise and that's a 3D printer that's currently printing a model of a small robot. I'm going to go to Brandon first who's been working on that project. Brandon, what have you been doing this summer? Uh, I have mainly been working on uh, different forms of CAD CAM so I've been looking at how to make uh, this robot, how to make different logos, how to do different designs. Um, that's mainly been my thing. And uh, what software have you been using? Uh, so I use uh, SolidWorks, which is a professional CAD software. And uh, what you would then do is translate it into Cura, and Cura then gives you the G-code files. And what, uh, what's your background, and where have you come from? So I'm an aerospace engineer, and I study currently at the University of the West of England in my third year. Uh, and what appealed to you about this internship? Um, well, I... I realised this internship will be quite different. So I really enjoy doing science communication, so I've done some teaching roles before, and I just felt like this would be um, a really special thing to add to my CV um, and a nice thing to do over the summer. Thank you. So you've heard a little bit about a robot that Brandon's been printing and designing. I'm next going to go to Alice, who's been doing more things with this robot. First off, Alice, would you like to tell us what the robot's called? Uh, the robot's called Cyril. So Cyril is a little robot that controls um, the network of telescopes that are located all over the world. And, and I've been working on an animation about Cyril and um, its journey to find uh, dark skies to view the stars. Um, yeah. That's cool. And uh, so that's the, uh, the Las Cumbres Observatory uh, telescope network that we've talked about several times on Pythagorean astronomy. Uh, so you uh, have come from where? Uh, so I've just graduated from Durham University and I also live um, up north, um, just outside of Durham. What first attracted you to this internship? 
Um, I'm quite interested in science communication. So uh, like Brandon, I've also done um, some teaching roles. And last year I did a project based on science communication for another telescope group um, doing some more animations. So this was, um, yeah, really appealed to me. Excellent. Uh, and so obviously uh, this robot, Serral, has uh, some uh, interesting adventures, but one of the key aspects of it is graphic design and uh, the environment that Serral's going to be in. So we'll now move over to Susanna, uh, who's been working on the, the design element. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, um, it's been very enjoyable. I've been making a, a very wide range of things from uh, very small stickers to big posters um, and a lot of things for the website a lot of um, different um, astronomical items I've made and I've used them throughout the entire process trying to stick to a theme and it's been really interesting because it's something I've not done before. You say that you've not done this before but uh, you, you have enjoyed a little bit of fame in your past haven't you? Yes <laughs> that's not meant to come up <laughs> yeah in my youth I won a competition to design a TARDIS console um, which was on Talk to Who, but it wasn't very good. It was called the Junk TARDIS. So that's but it, it was absolutely perfect for the episode <laughs> it was in. But fortunately, you haven't created a, a junk robot no. for us. Uh, we've got a very beautifully designed robot that fits in uh, with both Brandon and Alice's uh, components uh, as part of this, this project. Um, so where have you come from? I'm the same as Alice, where I've 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 been studying at Durham University, but I've not graduated. I'm in my going into my third year doing physics as well. Uh, but I live um, near Manchester area. Ah, thank you. Uh, and finally, uh, for the Serral project, I'm going to move over to Ronan, who's been working on uh, a slightly different angle. So, Ronan, what have you been working on? So, as part of the Serral project, I've been working on making a miniature telescope array that responds to sensors and then. If, say, the sensor realizes that one of the telescopes, the small uh, model telescopes, has got water on it, it'll realize that it would be simulating rain there and would shut that telescope down and move to another one. So it's sort of simulating to children how a global telescope array works. So what, what I've got in front of me is a mass of spaghetti wires and uh, some circuit boards and buttons and uh, little servo motors, um, two servos for each of the telescopes. So there's going to be four different telescope sites and the, the robot Serral is going to sit in the middle and control all four of those uh, telescopes. That's right, isn't it, Ronan? Uh, that's correct, yes. Uh, as, and also you've been working on uh, a different project uh, as part of uh, your internship this summer. Um, what was that? Uh, so I was also working with uh, AstroEDU, which is part of the International Astronomical Union. Uh, they've uh, developed a site which is a new way of uh, educating people with astronomy. It's using peer-reviewed education material. So normally in education, someone would create material which would then be used, uh, but that can lead to material that's not the best it could be. So this, in this format, people create material which is then reviewed by both educators and people in the scientific community to make sure it is both uh, good for education and scientifically accurate. So I've been working on their website, uh, just uploading files and uh, editing documents and uh, just helping out with it. So you've been uh, one of the editors for, for AstroEdu this summer. Um, and uh, if anybody wants to have a look at any of these education activities, uh, what's the website they should have a look at? astroedu.iau.org. 
Okay, excellent. And it's uh, it's got lots of high quality uh, resources there for teachers and educators. And uh, where have you come to us from, Ronan? Uh, so I'm also studying at Durham University, but I got this internship through the Ogden Trust, which is a great uh, trust for physics uh, outreach programs and for physics educational programs. But you're actually from Cardiff, like me. Oh, yes, I am. I'm from Cardiff, yeah. So I should point out that there is no Durham bias uh, in these internships. Each one of these students um, completed a form and went to an interview. So um, everybody had an equal chance. Uh, It just so happens that uh, we had three from Durham. Uh, And finally, we'll move on to Dan, who's been working with Chris on, um, well, a, a project that's just been building Lego all summer. I've been working on Lego LIGO. So that sounds very intriguing as a, as a fan of Lego myself. What does it entail? Uh, it uses Lego Mindstorms to basically simulate a, the arm extension in an actual Lego interferometer. So these are uh, the two interferometers that discover gravitational waves. Um, one's in Louisiana and the other is in it's Washington. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, in Washington in the US, both of them. And they're... Um, two long tubes at a right angle which fire lasers down them Uh, and that's uh, by looking at how um, the path of the laser is slightly changed by the presence of gravitational wave that's how the team proves that there were these gravitational waves but as a sort of outreach activity you're building a similar thing out of lego is that right yeah so it's about uh, a meter square uh, and the idea is that we can bring it to school children or whoever might be interested and show an example of how this works in your life. Oh, it's really fun. And you got to play with Lego Absolutely, the whole summer. yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, where are you studying currently? At the University of Birmingham. Oh, very nice. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Right, I'm now joined by Mayrin. Now, Mayrin, who are you working with? I'm working with Paul Roach from the Forbes Telescope Project. And uh, what have you been doing during your summer internship? I've done a lot of translation of English materials into Welsh. I've written a lot of resources and activities for the Forks Telescope website. In English and Welsh? In English and Welsh. It's very good. And it's very handy having a Welsh affluent and yeah. very good Welsh speaker. Well, I love it, so handy for me too. That's good. And you're also, you're doing a physics degree or a physics... Yeah, astronomy? I'm doing a standard physics degree at the University of Manchester. So you're ideal because you know all the terminology and uh, your first language Welsh speaker, mm. so you can translate everything uh, into a language which not only you understand the scientific aspect, but you can also turn it into Welsh that is familiar to people whose yeah. uh, Welsh is their first language. Yeah, that's right. Someone might be, well, there are definitely better translators than me, but they might not be so, so familiar with the specific terminology. Yeah. And so what uh, what else have you done? You've done some exhibitions, haven't you, this summer? Oh, yeah. I've um, I've been at some festivals and I had some demonstrations of fossils and things like that so surrounding meteorites um, to show to kids and families. And that was very popular. They seemed to like it. Good. And were any of those in uh, through the medium of Welsh? Yeah, they were um, bilingual, really. Um one of the festivals was Tavoil, which is Cardiff's Welsh Medium Festival. Um, so a lot of that was in Welsh. Oh, cool. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
So having interns this summer has been an incredibly interesting and uh, fulfilling experience for me and Chris and also uh, for these interns. All of us, I think, have learned new, interesting skills and been involved in projects which we wouldn't normally have done. It's something uh, that we've not really done in this sort of way uh, here at Cardiff University or with Las Cumbres before, but I think it's really set a precedent now for what we can achieve in future years. Back to you, Chris. Thanks to Edward and all our guests uh, for this edition of Pythagorean Astronomy. Uh, Don't forget, full episodes available at pythagastro.uk. Until next month, goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.